Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Big story today, big prices at the pump. So we, we got the news this afternoon that the national average gas price is now $4.10, uh, 4.104 to take it all the way out there to the decimal points uh, per gallon. That breaks the old record set uh, briefly, uh, where prices briefly went uh, that high in the summer of 2008. Uh, the CEO of GasBuddy.com says, never seen gas prices go up so fast and furious all at once. Highest statewide average is California, 4.30. Uh, the San Francisco Bay Area is near $5 a gallon average gas price. I know I'm paying more than I've ever paid uh, living here in Texas. Now, interesting to watch this all unfold, right? So you've got um, the Biden administration saying that they are considering a new diplomatic outreach to Saudi Arabia, and Biden himself may even go to Saudi Arabia and meet with the crown prince. You talk about going hat in hand. Saudi Arabia is a country that when Joe Biden was running for president in 2019, uh, he said that he would make Saudi Arabia a pariah among nations. There is very little social redeeming value in the government of Saudi Arabia, said candidate Biden. He was a tiger on the campaign trail, but now he's a kitten. Please, can we have some oil from Saudi Arabia? And again, Joe Biden may have to go in person. And then there's a story today that the Biden administration may be sending a diplomatic uh, squad to Venezuela to meet with uh, Nicolas Maduro because Venezuela is a huge producer. Now, we don't even officially recognize Maduro as the president of that country. We officially recognize... Uh, since the last administration, the opposition leader as the interim or actual president of the country. And um, there was even talk back when uh, Maduro was trying to squeeze that other guy out uh, that uh, we might do a uh, Navy embargo of their oil shipping. So here's, here's what a difference a day makes. The Biden administration is now saying Saudi Arabia is an ally with whom we need to trade more, and Maduro is a guy we've got to do business with in Venezuela. And obviously, you could say a lot about the the tiger on the campaign trail, kitten once you're in office analogy. You could also say there's a lot of reckoning here of what's really important when it comes to foreign policy, but, 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 you know, I look at all this and I think the way they sold Biden to people, the way they sold him to centrist Democrats, the way they sold him to, uh, moderates and, and even independent voters was that the adults would be back in charge, right? That we would have adults in the room, adult leadership, calm, reasonable, uh, you know, getting along with the world kind of leadership. And I hope you saved your receipts if you fell for that, because this is the new reality. Um, like everything else Joe Biden was handed 
in January of 2021, he's blown it. He's blown it. Energy prices through the roof. Gas prices through the roof. Expected to go higher. It's not even that they've come to some new realization, like they're they're getting smarter or they're wising up. It, they're just they're just worried about the poll numbers. They're not letting go of the Green New Deal. They're not saying, "Hey, it's our fault. That was not a good idea. We're going to back off on that." Nope, not at all. Um, in fact. The way you know they haven't backed down on it is that they like any kind of oil right now except oil produced by Americans in America. They're willing to go anywhere. I mean, literally, they're willing to do business with anyone who will help them alleviate those pump prices and therefore those poll numbers except here. And the reason they can't do it here is because Here is where they would run up against the extreme left wing of the Democratic Party. Here is where the Green New Dealers would say, no, Joe, we're not supporting you on that. You do what you got to do with Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. We don't like it. We're not going to praise it, but we won't get in the way of it because we recognize the poll numbers. But you can't start extracting more oil and, and exploiting more of our resources here in this country. We're not having that. So apparently oil is a fossil fuel only if it's extracted from the ground here in America. But there's even a bigger point to all this than just the fact that everything they've handed Joe Biden, he's blown. Remember, President Obama famously said of his vice president, don't don't underestimate Joe's ability to F things up. But there's even a bigger issue. The, the, The really great sin that Donald Trump committed wasn't any of the things they tried to impeach him for or any of his supposed scandals in the business world. The greatest sin of Donald Trump was that Donald Trump took his measure of the foreign policy elites in this country, the people that are routinely consulted by presidents of both parties, the people who expect to be advisors and, you know, senior elder statesmen and women. And he said, I don't think you guys know what you're doing. I'm not going to listen to you. Now, he didn't always listen to the best people. Some of the people that Donald Trump brought in were were wingnuts. But he had the right instinct about these elites. He had the right instinct that they had not performed since since World War II this this group of elites, East Coast, Ivy League educated, all vacationing together on the Hamptons, these people had gotten way more wrong than they had gotten right. And Joe Biden was the restoration of these people. Joe Biden was the return to, you know, speed dial for these people. We're in again will be appointed to important positions. Anthony Blinken, John Kerry will be back in charge. We'll be the ones, and people we know and people we trust, our kind of people will be making decisions, making foreign policy again. And this is where we're at. You're swapping Putin's oil for Maduro's oil. What, what statement are you making there? How is that? How is that somehow loftier or more as Obama used to say that's who we are so we have to drop sanctions on one horrible regime 
because we're uh, we need to stick it to another horrible regime. I, I part of me wants to sympathize with them a little bit because in the real world you really don't have clear black and white choices. In the real world, you have a lot of grays. I get it, but they were the ones that that ran and won on the message of we know better and you should listen to us we've we listened into that phone call uh to the ukrainian president and we found it impeachable you can you imagine if we could hear the phone calls biden must be making and his team must be making to places like venezuela saudi arabia poland can you imagine i mean you talk about an impeachable phone call these are probably a hot mess we're not going to hear them there won't be a readout of them and um Biden being Biden, even in this moment, he'll probably blow the dealings with Saudi Arabia and with Maduro. This would be an opportunity to reset those relationships, at least for the time being, but probably in desperation, fear of plummeting poll numbers, uh, we will beg for oil and um, drop sanctions unilaterally and get nothing in return. Except maybe better poll numbers for him if the pump prices go down. And at this point, I'm not even sure that will be true. I, I, I was saying to somebody over the weekend, my understanding of politics was always that, you know, if, if prices at the supermarket or prices at the gas pump were going up, you were politically toast. And therefore, anything you could do to bring them down would save you or help salve you politically. But I'm not even sure that's true anymore. I think there's a whole lot of people who if, if these really high prices were just slightly less high, would still say there's something wrong. We elected people who declared war on our own energy industry, but are cozying up with the energy industries of countries that hate us. And so even if he could bring you some relief at the pump, would that change your outlook on Joe Biden? Would that make you think, oh, wait a minute, I, on second thought, he's not so bad after all. I, I'm asking because I don't think that's true. I don't think that's the way it works anymore. That might have been the way it worked at one time. You know, we could turn back toward him. I don't know if that's true at this point. You tell me. We're going to talk about that. Coming up on our show today, uh, best-selling author Brad Meltzer not only has a new novel out, but he has been the target of the cancel culture. Wait till you hear his story. And then um, we're going to talk with George P. Bush, the Republican challenger in the runoff against Attorney General Ken Paxton, he's going to be on our show later on. And, of course, we'll be on top of all the breaking news about Ukraine and Russia and prices. Foreign policy uh, has run into the real world. Um, the Biden energy policy, you could say that, too. Um, in the real world, gas prices are setting records. Uh, your party's getting annihilated in the midterms. And you're going to Saudi Arabia and Venezuela for more oil. You're begging China to help you with Russia. You're doing all the things that you certainly weren't planning on doing. And, and you're also doing the things that if you really were the adults back in charge again, you wouldn't, you know, nobody would dream of you doing. And to me, this just goes to show that for all his flaws and all the mistakes that he made, Trump was right to distrust the people that are now advising Joe Biden as president. These are not people to listen to. These are not people that should continue to be uh, running Pax Americana since World War II. The Green New Deal is a whole separate conversation. But 
Um, j- just to focus in for a minute on, you know, the, the grayer heads and the elder statesmen and stateswomen, statespeople, whatever we're calling them now. I mean, just, it's just a mess. They've, they've fumbled and bumbled everything that they inherited. And, um, you know, I think people have a good feeling about the, the, the fight and the pluck that they see from the Ukrainians. That's, that's one thing. But one thing I'm noticing here today is that usually in a, in a moment like this, Americans don't just feel good about the, the people fighting for their freedom. Americans feel good about their own leadership and their own country. Um, and, um, right now we don't. There isn't that normal, um, sort of rah-rah that, that there would be. You know, it's telling that people are putting, I laughed about this last week, but it's telling that in this moment, one of the gravest, uh, international crises, uh, of the last 50 years, that people are putting the Ukrainian flag colors on their profile pictures, not red, white, and blue. And it's not to say that they don't love their country or they're ashamed of their country, but they don't have the same certainty of how it's being led. They look at the way the Ukrainians are fighting, and they go, those people have a leader. And they have a cause. They're, they, they're sure about what they're doing. We don't know what will happen to them, but they have certainty. And we have a, a president who's running around, apparently begging our enemies for oil. Robert is a 210-599-5555 on KTSA. Robert, good afternoon. Hey, sir. How you doing? This is Robert Pellegrin. And uh, I, I, I served 35 years with the Army. I'm an officer. Uh, when I was in Germany from 79 to 81, we um, have alerts, you know, five alerts a month. We had a, a division alert, a brigade alert, and a unit alert to hold back the Russians if they ever cross the border. Okay. And I think we're not standing up to the Russians. I think, I think they're 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 looking at us in the eye. And we, we blinked. We haven't done our, our share. We're there for a purpose. And and you think they're going to stop there? Then they're going to stop there. I think I think uh, why wait for it to get worse? And they're going to corner us into a corner. Let's let let's let's do what we're supposed to do. And stand up to them because they're not going to stop, sir. That's my yeah. feelings. Yeah. No, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think they've used the excuse of of well, Ukraine is not a NATO country. We don't have an obligation. But I, I agree with you. I, I don't think it will matter to Putin if his next target is a NATO country. I think he's already taken his his you know reading of us. And look, we've, we've advertised why we won't do anything. We've said out loud, we're not going to do anything because Russia's a nuclear power. We don't want a nuclear war. Well, if that's what you say, and maybe you agree with that, by the way, which is fine, but if that's what you say, then you've just excluded standing up to them if they invade a NATO country. That's why we're asking you on the JR poll today, do you think Putin would attack a NATO country? And I think he would, because I think... His read of us is that we are unwilling to um, fight a land war in Europe. His read of us is that Americans will look at, say, Lithuania, 
the same way they look at Ukraine. They won't say, oh, well, that's totally different because Lithuania is part of NATO. They'll say, we don't know where exactly that is, and we don't exactly know what our interest in it is. And some people will say, we're not fighting for that. We got our own problems at home. And other people will say what Robert said, which is, you got to stand up to them. And you might as well stand up to them here as much as there. But I think Putin's read of us right now, and again, you may think it's the right read, you may think he's getting it wrong, is that we're not going to, we're really not going to suddenly snap into action just because the next target, if there is a next target, uh, is a NATO country. And I think that, I think they use NATO as kind of an excuse because they weren't sure what to do here, or maybe they weren't sure they'd have to do anything. You know, Something nobody says out loud, but I'm sure a lot of people have thought of, is that if Putin had won a quick victory, if Ukraine had collapsed within a day or two or three, and again, those foreign policy experts, so-called, they were on television saying that would be the case, right? Okay, if that had happened, Biden's kind of off the hook, You know, if Ukraine's already defeated and occupied, we're not talking about it anymore. We've moved on to something else. This is the worst possible outcome, uh, not only for the Russians, because now they're bogged down, and we're going to talk about that with Jed Babin here coming up, but it's also the worst possible outcome for Team Biden because it keeps this thing on the front page, and it means that people are starting to ask questions. Well, what are we going to do? And are there going to be ground troops? And are we going to fight a land war in Europe? Those are only questions you have to ask if the, you know, rapid-fire invasion bogs down and becomes a long, protracted war, which apparently it's starting to become. I don't know. None of us know how this is going to end. But um, but that's that seems to be what's what's happening. And, and so they, they own this. We talked last week about owning the idea of making us energy dependent. But they also own this in the way that they reacted initially. They, they drew a line around Ukraine and they said, well, Ukraine's not NATO, so we're not going to go there. We're not going to do this. When I heard that, I thought that was very, a very interesting thing to say out loud. I could understand thinking it. But saying it out loud is very interesting because that that says two things without actually saying it out loud. One thing that says or implies is, well, if you do attack a NATO country, we will go to all-out war, right? But it also says we're not reacting to what Russia's doing because Russia's a nuclear power. We're afraid of escalation. Well, if if you're worried about escalation... Why wouldn't you be worried about escalation if you were fighting them in Poland or fighting them in Lithuania? The president of Poland has done an interview where he said he thinks that's a very real possibility. And these are serious people. They're not saying this just to hear themselves talk. If they're talking about their own country as being on Putin's checklist, uh, I have to think that they believe that's true. And... um there's a, there's a level of seriousness about this when you're in the shadow of the bear that I think is very different than hearing American senators who are Democrats or Republicans, you know, just kind of kibitzing about it on Meet the Press or whatever. Here on in our show, George P. Bush, Republican challenger in the runoff for Attorney General. We're going to hear from him. We're going to bring Ken Paxton back again as soon as we can as well. But it'll be George P. Bush today in about an hour. 
on KTSA. You know, one of the other things that's interesting to watch is um, we we've talked about this before, but they're really spinning it hard now. The um, the gas prices, the inflation. We're putting this on Putin. We're putting this on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I know all of this started before that. And it even started before Putin was massing troops on the border. Although um, I suppose you could make the argument that some people who really pay attention to these things took their cue from that massing of the troops. But look... uh, Gas price. If you look at a graph, gas prices, uh, grocery prices, they were going up pretty much from the beginning of Joe Biden's presidency. But now, the bodyguard of people in the media around him are saying he really needs to explain to people that this is Putin's fault, that this is Putin's war. Putin is kind of the new Trump. For them, you know, for a while in Biden's early months, everything he did wrong, every mistake, every bit of bad news was on Trump. And that's not over. They'll still do that. Uh, Trump is going to be a huge part of the midterms for these Democrats. But Putin is now their other sort of hook to hang things on, right? Well, uh, Putin's the reason for this, and Putin's the reason for that. Now, I would again say to them if that's your argument, you guys that are the foreign policy experts, remember, that was Joe Biden's great calling card. He was the most experienced candidate on foreign policy. He was going to be our most experienced foreign policy president. This guy's been seasoned and experienced. He's been on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for years and years. If that's your calling card, the adults are back in charge, then you can't say that you're surprised by Vladimir Putin. I mean, you guys are foreign policy gurus, you're experts. You go to all the symposia, you read all the magazines. So you're telling me that you are, on the one hand, the foreign policy experts in American politics, and on the other hand, you're telling me you're surprised by something Vladimir Putin did. The most talked about, debated, watched, observed leader in the world. It's kind of weird, isn't it? It doesn't really hang together when you think of it that way. And then the other thing they're saying now is that Biden needs to present things like gas prices and grocery prices as patriotic, meaning, well, we're we're paying more for these things, but we're doing that because we're in the fight. You know, we're on the side of the good and the just. That might have been a good argument for, like, FDR in World War II. You know, our boys are over there fighting. We're we're uh, rationing things on the home front. There's a whole of, of America response. It's total war. I don't think that's what this is. And according to them, that's never going to be what this is. So, again, they sort of want the... Uh, we're all in the boat together, let's roll up our sleeves, camaraderie of World War II, minus the part where we're actually in it.
So we're going to talk about that. 210-599-5555. Anytime Brad Meltzer has a new book, I want to read it. And I'm excited to be reading, hopefully very soon, the new one called The Lightning Rod. We're going to talk to him about that and about his recent brush with what I guess you could call the cancel culture, as he joins us now on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Brad Meltzer, welcome back. Good afternoon. Uh, Brother Jack, good to be back. So I do want to talk about the lightning rod, um, but first I want to hear, I, I just read this today, I did not know this, I want to hear this story of your children's books being canceled at some libraries, school libraries. Yeah, the um, a school board in York County, Pennsylvania, um, banned our books, I Am Rosa Parks and I Am Martin Luther King Jr. It had nothing, of course, to do with the content of the book. They banned, Ed, there was a 200 books that were listed as good for talking to your kids about race issues. It was, you know, my books, Malala, um, Hidden Figures, the, the women in NASA who were black, who helped the scientists there and worked with the right. uh, great scientists themselves. They've just... All of them said, they said, hey, listen, we don't want to put these books in kids' hands until we read them, which is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. You've got to read the books first. And so we're going to put a hold, a freeze on them until we check them. But the fast one that the school board pulled is they waited a year to do it. A year went by. They still hadn't read books that take five minutes to read. You know, these are kids' mm-hmm. books, obviously. Mm-hmm. And basically what happens is what starts as a freeze becomes a ban. And... Mm-hmm. When I got word about it, Fox News, my friends at Fox News called me. My friends at CNN called me. My friends at MSNBC called me. <laughs> they all said this is a tragedy. And when, when Fox News and CNN and MSNBC agree, you know you've gone too far, right? And so I got involved. We, um, we worked and went to the school board. We asked everyone out there. We said, go buy the books, not just my books, but buy every book on this list. We're going to fight this ban. I went to the school board meeting. We got the ban overturned. Um, I spoke impassionally about, I even read from my I Am Rosa Parks book, and we got it overturned. But what you're seeing is this kind of, you know, when you're banning books, and you're seeing in the culture right now, when you're banning books, you're on the wrong side of history. And I agree. you can't ban Rosa Parks, you can't ban Dr. King. Well, not only that, but, you know, you're a dad, I'm a dad. I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I was saying this the other day. As far as I'm concerned, if your kid goes into the library and reads a book, I am much less worried about which book it is and much more enthused that they're reading a book. And maybe not every book is the best, you know, not every book is the best book or not every book is the, but I mean, if they're reading, they're not too far off. You know, your kid is not too far off the beam if they're reading. This is why we're friends, of course. I mean, because otherwise, you know what you are? You're censoring. You're a censor. And if you're cheering while books are being pulled off the shelves, you're doing it wrong. I mean, I, I understand the distinction between something that is curriculum, where the kids are a captive audience in the classroom, and I don't want that to be political or, or uh, propagandized. But as far as what's in the library on the shelves, that's a free market of ideas. Let them find whatever they find. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm glad. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's an incredible thing. So, yeah, so that's... That was where we started, and then, of course, let's. Now that we've talked about children book bans, we can talk about murder. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have thought of all the things you would you would get into a controversy about. I wouldn't have thought it was the children's books, but but you know that's our world that we live in. So you've brought back two characters that people really love in this uh, new novel, which comes out I think tomorrow, right? Called the Lightning Rod. 
Yeah, so the lightning rod, uh, you know, I brought these characters back, but you can pick it up if you've never read them before. And I started the, you know, this book, it's a thriller, it's a mystery, with one of my great fears, which is the main, one of the characters hands his valet keys over to the valet at a fancy restaurant. And the valet takes the keys, but instead of parking the car, what he does is he hits the little button on the steering wheel with the GPS, and he says the magic words, go home. And now he's going to the man's house, with his car keys that have his house keys on there because mm. this is a robbery. And mm. when he gets into the house to rob the house, someone's waiting for him with a gun because this is not a robbery. This is a trap. And mm. when the body shows up at our hero's doorstep, he finds something hidden on the body that no one else was supposed to see. And it leads to one of the government's most closely guarded secrets. That's, I just ruined chapter one of the lightning rod for you. Um, but, but that's the, that's the opening scene of the lightning rod. And it asks the question, you know, what's, what's your greatest secret? No one knows about you. Cause as you'll see in chapter one, it's about to come out. I think it's great that you have a mortician as a main character in a novel, because you know, not since Quincy was on television, have we had that kind of, and I know he was a coroner, love, not a mortician, yeah, but we got to have those Quincy kinds of people, reference. right? Uh, I, first of all, God bless you for mentioning Quincy. I make a Quincy joke in the book. It's big, spectacular. But, you know, what I, what I love about, you know, the, the heroes in the book, they work at Dover Air Force Base. And as a mortician, he takes care of the fallen soldiers whose bodies come back from war. So it's the, you know, when those flag-covered coffins come off the plane, that's who the hero of the book is taken care of. And they'll spend 12 hours rewiring someone's jaw and smoothing it over with clay because they want to, someone wants to see their son one last time. Mm-hmm. Or rebuilding someone's hand because a mother says she wants to hold her son's hand one last time. These are the mm-hmm. best of us working on the best of us. And one of the things that, you know, I always, yes, it's fiction, yes, it's a thriller, but I always base it in reality. So one of the things you see in the book, you know, you and I have talked so many times over the years. I've done the secret tunnels below the White House. I've done the hidden labyrinth below the Capitol. But what I found for this book was that, and this is true, is the government has about a dozen secret warehouses that they use to house all the antidotes for bioterrorism attacks. So whether it's, you know, Zika or whether it's, you know, anthrax or smallpox, whether it's San Antonio that's being attacked, California, Florida, New York, pick anywhere, Idaho, within hours, these, these warehouses are situated that within hours by your nearest airports, they will have the antidote on your doorstep. And I said, you're telling me the government has these real-life secret warehouses. No one can go inside. I want to know what's in them. So when you get to the final chapters of this mystery thriller, when you get to the last chapters of The Lightning Rod, you go in the warehouse. What's in there? I didn't make it up. It's really in there. I got mm. to actually like find out what's inside. And so that's obviously the fun of reading the book. Yeah, there's, no, there's no way you're not reading this book now, right? Okay, we... We now you are the hook is in so deep it's not coming out. Uh, the new one, which comes out tomorrow, is the Lightning Rod. Brad Meltzer. It's always great to have you back. Thank you for making time for us. We appreciate it. Thank you, my friend Jack. All right, we'll talk to you soon, and good luck with uh, fighting those fighting those censors too. Um, tell me what you think. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five on five fifty and one zero seven one KTSa. We're getting your votes on today's Stevens Roofing Jr. poll. Do you think? Putin would attack a NATO country, or do you believe he would stop and only do what he's doing in Ukraine because they don't happen to be a NATO country? Um, so give me your thoughts on that. And then we've been talking about the gas prices and where we get our oil and why we don't want to get it here. 
but we're willing to get it from everywhere else. And your thoughts on that? And of course, we're uh, we're all over this runoff. I believe Ukraine is not the last item on Mr. Putin's menu, says the ambassador doing an interview with Fox News. He's echoing his own president, who has also said that. Um, we have to be ready and determined to uphold the sanctions. He says the sanctions may need to be in place for 10 or 20 years. Um, and that Putin is not done with Ukraine. He says we, in Poland... The Baltics, we've never had any doubts whatsoever about the neo-imperial ambitions of the Russian president. And I got to say, um, I, and, and look, I, I want to be clear that, you know, you don't, you don't root against your own team. You don't root against your own country. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Um, but I don't think he believes that this president would stand up to or stand up for Poland or Lithuania differently. Now, I understand NATO has Article 5, and it says if one member is attacked, all must. But but I also know that in that moment, let's say that that does happen. In that moment, all the things they said made fighting in Ukraine impractical will, will, will still be true. We, we don't want to widen the war. We don't want nuclear uh escalation we don't you know so if you if you listen to what we're saying it doesn't sound like we're telling him you better never do this again oh and by the way all these sanctions what if we do all the sanctions we've threatened to do and and talked about doing and we do all the ones Joe Biden wants to do but we also do the ones that Mitch McConnell wants to do and Marco Marco Rubio wants to do and all these you know people in both parties what if we do all those and Putin's like okay I've you know I'm still here because I again I'm I hope they're right and I hope this is too much for him and there's somebody uh, in Russia that has a better plan. But if if all you're willing to do are these sanctions and you do them, then what do you have? You know, what else is there? And I'm not rooting for World War III, but wars have a way, when you're a, a democracy and you're uh, preferring to be at peace, Wars have a way of finding you. And you could actually argue that Putin grabbing, say, the Baltics, which would be Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, that actually is an, is a, is an easier grab. That's, those are smaller territorial states. Um, easier to get to, easier to get into. So we'll see. I don't know that they have. I don't know a lot about what their internal politics are, but you also have to wonder, do they have a Zelensky? Do they have somebody who would galvanize the the people of the country? Because I think it's pretty clear that the the X factor here has been that I think the Russians thought when they went into Ukraine, Ukraine would immediately cease to be a a functioning society, right? It would just be a bunch of people hiding, but they're fighting like, hey, we're still a country. And that is a game changer, right? That's that's why we're, what is this, I think, the 12th day. And all those experts 
and they were Republican as well as Democrat, all those experts two or three weeks ago were saying, oh, it would be a one- or two-day war. 210-599-5555. Who did this survey? Uh, The Economist and YouGov did a survey that found only 19% of Americans believe uh, sending uh, U.S. troops to Ukraine is a good idea. Listen to this, though. 19% think it's a good idea. 54% think it's a bad idea. 33% said it was a good idea to send soldiers to Ukraine to provide help but not to fight Russian soldiers. I don't understand where we're getting. Well, I guess I do understand it. We've we've miseducated a whole lot of people about the idea that you can send the military, but you're not at war. And I, you tell me if you think I'm wrong, but if you put American servicemen and women into Ukraine, and you tell them, don't fight the Russians, do these other things, hand out supplies, build shelters, they become high-value targets. Um, And they become essentially like the American troops that were in Kabul in the final hours of our time there. And we know how that ended, and it wasn't good. It's kind of disturbing that if this poll is correct, a third of people think you can send, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. You can send in the troops, but not to fight. Let's go back in time for a minute to the 1950s, the darkest days of the Cold War. And they came up with this, uh, the military came up with this rating system called DEFCON. And you probably have heard this, right? You know, DEFCON 1, DEFCON 2, DEFCON 5. These were different levels of um, preparedness um, or readiness. Um, It's declared by the president and the secretary of defense and the joint chiefs of staff. And the numbers are a little misleading because the lower the number, the worse things are. So DEFCON 5 is our normal state of readiness. DEFCON 1 means we're at war or war. Nuclear war is imminent. Okay. So, and to put it in perspective, we have DEFCON 1 through 5. We've never gone above DEFCON 3 on a global level. We went to DEFCON 3 on 9-11. We went to DEFCON 3 uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, we've put parts of our military on brief uh, levels of DEFCON 2 or DEFCON 3, but globally we've never gone above DEFCON 3. And again, DEFCON 1 is the worst. And I'm telling you this because I was reading a story over the weekend about a new um, Spanish-language conservative network called Americano, which is launching tomorrow. It's a satellite service. It's conservative programming, news and commentary in Spanish. And NBC News had done this piece on their website about Americano, and they quoted a guy named Ferdinand Amandi, who is a political guy. He worked for Barack Obama as his Hispanic outreach director. And Ferdinand Amandi is responding to or reacting to the formation of this Americano service, and he says this is a DEFCON 1 moment. For those concerned about the disinformation problem harming Democrats' chances with Hispanics, this is a DEFCON 1 moment. We should be worried. 
DEFCON 1 means nuclear war is imminent. Why would you be so worried if you were a Democrat, a Democratic political consultant? Why would you be so worried about a conservative Spanish language service? First of all, you may be wondering, like I did when I read the article, isn't there already one? Well, in any event, somebody is starting one. And one of the weird things about our politics these days is that Hispanic voters, like black voters, are only supposed to be spoken to by Democrats. They're only supposed to be um, to have things explained or analyzed. They're only supposed to be uh, comfortable with Democrats. O- they can only vote for Democrats. They can only listen to Democrats. Hispanic voters are not to ever think outside that box that the Democratic Party wants to keep them in. And they've defined for you all your stands on all the important issues. And whether that's the way you really feel about it personally or not, if you're, you remember, you remember when Joe Biden said, you ain't black, you know, if you're, you ain't Hispanic, if you go off these, um, these particular uh, approaches. So I think the panic over this Americano network or channel um, is that, I mean, yeah, they're, ha- they're, they're having a heart attack about this because look what's already happened without it. Look at the changes in border districts here in Texas. Look at the inroads that Trump made. And, um, you know, Trump made those inroads and, and, and converted a lot of Hispanic voters to his candidacy. It doesn't mean they're now Republicans. Doesn't mean they'll vote for any and every other Republican that comes along, but now that door is open a crack where it wasn't before. And I just think it's really interesting that instead of saying we're going to um, contend for those voters or we, we believe we can make a better case to those voters, this guy's reaction was this is like the end of the world. Nuclear war is the end of of the world. DEFCON 1. If you hear ever hear that we're at DEFCON 1, don't buy any green bananas. You know what I'm saying? It's the end of the world. Because there's a political network targeting Hispanic audiences with conservative news and commentary. And again, they go, so they do this story and they go to a guy who, it makes sense. I mean, they went to a leading Democratic messaging guy he does polling and he does you know outreach and messaging for the democrats with hispanic voters makes sense to interview him right but his reaction is not well welcome to the game or you know we're going to give it as well as we take it his reaction is this is it this it's all over (laughs) it's defcon one um what are your thoughts about that i've always been fascinated uh by how um by the it's a, it's just an unwritten rule um only one political party is allowed to talk to latinos only one political party is allowed to represent latinos when a uh a hispanic man or woman identifies as a conservative or decides to get into politics and they run as a republican unless they're cuban american and running in florida which is kind of its own thing but they almost have to do extra explaining. There has to be like extra justifying for that. Well, wh- 
what what are you doing? What what is this? And it's the same thing with African American voters, right? I mean, if you're an African American political candidate and you're a conservative or you're a commentator and you're conservative, there's this sort of extra step you have to execute of justifying your beliefs that they can't be just as heartfelt as any other black person's. They can't be just as genuine. They can't be just as organically arrived at. They somehow have to be um, given a special status. And until you sell us that you really do believe this stuff, we're going to think, well, maybe you're being held hostage. Or are they holding your family somewhere? Or is there a gun at your head? Or, or you ain't black, as Joe Biden said. 210-599-5555. Haven't seen this service. I don't know what their programming is or if it's any good. Just want to get your reaction to that. Coming up in about 20 minutes, he wants to be the next attorney general for Texas. He's in a Republican primary runoff with A.G. Ken Paxton. We'll talk to George P. Bush. Coming up here about 15, 16 minutes on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Day 12 of the Russia-Ukraine war, and on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line, Jed Babin, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense in the Bush 41 administration, and also a contributing editor at American Spectator. Did you think we would be where we are 12 days in when this was getting started, Jed? No, I didn't. I thought the Ukrainians would have been beaten by now. I thought Russia would have established air supremacy, and you know their troops would come in and frankly roll over a lot of the Ukrainians. I had no idea that this was going to go on, that the Ukrainians would fight as well as they could, as well as they are fighting. And uh, the fact that the Russians don't seem to have much in the way of good troops or good aircraft and not much else to go with it. You know, we don't know how this will end, obviously, but I was saying earlier, not only has the Ukrainian resistance been hell on the Russians, it's been hell on the foreign policy elites in this country because if Ukraine had folded up in a couple of days, we wouldn't have this prolonged, torturous debate about sanctions and jet, fighter jets and all this sure. stuff that they are really struggling with and I think do not want to be talking about. No, they really don't. I mean, Biden certainly doesn't want to talk about the fact that he strangled American energy supplies and uh, that he could do a lot to alleviate that problem. Instead, he's going, believe it or not, Jack, he's going to Venezuela. Yeah, He's going to Venezuela to try to talk them into giving us more oil, which is such a bad idea. It could only come from the Biden White House. Well, you know, you have that, uh, a government we don't even officially recognize. You have them, uh, I guess, the story that we may be going to the Saudis again or that Biden may even make a trip uh, to Saudi Arabia. This is a country that he said in 2019 uh, had no socially redeeming value. Their government, I should say, had no socially redeeming value, and he would make their government a pariah in the international community. That's quite a pivot to having to go and beg them for oil. Well, that's exactly what he might do. You know, he's not going there to ask politely. He's going there to beg. <clears throat> if he goes there at all, uh, well, of course, he sent Kamala Harris to try to negotiate peace in Ukraine, which is about like sending uh, Alexandria Cutie Cortez. Uh, but at this point, Biden doesn't have a good way out. I mean, he has hurt this country. He's hurt our allies. And quite frankly, he's hurting Ukraine by not standing up to Russia well enough. At this point, the polls are trying to send 
MiG fighters, and if they can get them through to the Ukrainians and put them in Ukrainian hands, that would help enormously. Uh, there's not going to be a whole lot more that's going to be done. But I really think one of the things we need to talk about is the war crimes that the Russians are committing against Ukrainians right now as we speak and that have been committed over the past 10 days. Uh, I'm going to have a column about that tomorrow in uh, American Spectator, so maybe we want to talk about that later in the week. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, What do you think is going on with the Russian convoy uh, outside the, the the capital city of Kiev that that is that seems not to be moving. I mean, we've been hearing for days these are the final hours for Kiev, and so far nothing's happening. Well, I think there's a whole bunch of things going on. Uh, I think number one, the Russians are not able to support the column with food and fuel, so a lot of the people in that column are just pulling back and saying, you know, at least feed us, and then maybe we'll go on to Kiev. Uh, on the other hand, I think. The Ukrainians, who very much want to bomb the hell out of that column, uh, may wonder and worry uh, about what would Putin's response be if that column was suddenly destroyed. Uh, And on the other hand, I think at this point, uh, I think the Russians are crowding the skies above that column with their own fighters to protect it. So right now it's stalled. It doesn't appear to be going anywhere anytime soon. But it's also tying up a really good bit of the Russian air power. And, well, it's going to be something that they're going to have to either fish or cut bait on pretty soon. You know, there's a lot of stories. You and I have talked about this before, Jed. There are a lot of uh, sub-stories to this story that seem sort of hopeful. You know, the, the pluckiness of the Ukrainian people, the the, the downing of, of Russian jets, Um some of this seems um, like it might be genuinely good news, but some of it also maybe seems like it's more hopeful than accurate. Are you are you concerned that we may be getting kind of a, I don't know, kind of a stream of feel-good stories that don't reflect what's really happening or what really is going to happen? Well, I think that's certainly possible. I am concerned about that, uh, but I think it's what we always call the fog of war. I think that there's a lot of people who might know what's going on in most details, uh, but I don't think that even Putin knows what the heck's going on in complete detail, and I'm pretty sure Biden doesn't. So, you know, maybe Zelensky has a good handle on things. Uh, He's been pleading for a no-fly zone. He now says, send us aircraft instead. Uh, You know, he's in in the toughest position of all, uh, but he is an extraordinarily brave and smart man. And uh, I'm betting on him at this point, not on the Russians. I mean, we have uh, stories that indicate, um, you know, there's there's uh, disloyalty in the FSB, which is the successor to the KGB. Um, we have stories about, um, you know, people inside the, the Russian government who disagree with this invasion, supposedly sabotaging or being... You know, being double agents, you know, that's the kind of thing you have to be careful not to want to believe more than you should believe it, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, there's an awful lot of stuff out there that is wishful thinking, and, you know, it's it's part of my job and, and yours to try to filter that stuff out and try to actually figure out what the heck is going on. Uh, and I think that there's too much reliance now on the feel-good stuff, and I think at this point we have to be pretty realistic about it. The Russians have committed... I think virtually all of their 150,000 troops, as you pointed out, they've got the massive column that still might uh, 
that uh, still is threatening Kiev and uh, may or may not be able to move on it. So there's an awful lot of things that can and uh, probably will happen at this point. And, you know, the outcome of the war, as you said earlier, is, is certainly not determined at this point. We don't know what's going to happen. Probably not fair to ask you this so early, but I'm going to take a swing at it anyway, and you can take a swing at answering it. I mean, we see Germany rethinking its military posture. We see the European community rethinking its energy strategy. It seems like they're having a road to Damascus moment around a lot of issues in Europe. Is that a lasting thing, or is that just going to all fade away this time next year? Well, you're hitting the most important point, Jack. Uh, I think that by the time next year rolls around, Ukraine will be forgotten. Germany will go back to its old, well, we're not going to spend on defense kind of mood. Uh, and I don't think anything's going to last. I think that part of the problem we have is that they, in terms of they being Europe and the NATO nations over there, uh, they are not going to take seriously what Russia and China are doing, what Iran is doing, and they're going to go back to their old ways. They just don't see it's necessary for them to defend themselves while we're shouldering all the burden. And we've drawn a bright line, rightly or wrongly, uh, about the fact that Ukraine is not a NATO member. So we've justified what we are doing and, more importantly, what we're not doing with that uh, explanation, which would imply that if he then moved on a NATO member, everything would be different. Do you think... Putin believes, because it doesn't sound like Poland believes it or Lithuania believes it. Do you do you believe that he would not cross that line? I don't believe that he would restrain himself. Uh, I think if he were convinced that he actually could do it and take on NATO, and I would guess that uh, you know he was he's smart enough at this point to say you know throw the BS flag at any of his generals and say oh well we can just roll into Latvia or Poland. Uh, I think he would say, go back and fix things before we try anything like that. But who knows? I think there's an awful lot of people uh, who, frankly, may be purged as a result of their performance uh, in the Ukraine war. And, you know, I'm talking about Sergei Shoigu, uh, for example, the uh, Russian defense minister, who has been one of Putin's key allies in government for 20 years. Uh, I think people like that. Uh, they may very well find themselves in front of a firing squad or off to Siberia. And I think Putin is going to have to really recalculate what he can do as opposed to what he wants to do. Poland is out of the question. It's much too big, much too strong. I think Latvia, Estonia, uh, Lithuania, uh, those are, are possible yeah. areas of, uh, of conquest for, for Putin. But I think be- at this point what, what, what Ukraine is showing is that they don't have anywhere near the capability they think they have. They'll be airbrushing some photos again like they did back in the day uh, at the Kremlin. <laughs> uh, read them in the American Spectator and other places. Jed Babin. Jed, always good to have you. Thank you, sir. We appreciate it tonight. Thank you. And on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line, Land Commissioner George P. Bush, who is in the Republican runoff for Attorney General with Attorney General Ken Paxton. Commissioner, welcome back. Good afternoon to you. Thank you for having me. So now is the hard part, right? I mean, it's uh, every candidate we've talked to who's in a runoff says it is hard to make sure people stay motivated and are aware of the fact that there is yet another election. Um, you got to keep people engaged and interested. Um, you and the other challengers did hold Ken Paxton to under 50%, thus the runoff. 
but he still got up there in the mid to high 40s. So what's the pivot? What's the message uh, now to get people to come out and vote again in a matter of weeks? Well, you're right. It'll be a smaller universe of voters. Uh, we had, you know, close to 1.9 million voters amount. We expect that number to drop significantly, maybe even a, just a third of that number will, will show up the last Tuesday of May. And so that's going to be on the campaign is to not only identify our voters, but I've already made calls to Eva Guzman and to Louis Gilmert. And I think it surprises people to hear this, but I, I think we'll get a lot of their supporters. Uh, they were in this for the right reasons, and that's to remove public corruption from the top attorney position in the state of Texas. And so I feel secure in saying that we'll get a lot of their supporters, had them come over. And the simple math is, that 57% plus of Republican voters voted against a sitting statewide incumbent. And that's only happened once in the last 50 years based on our research. And it didn't turn out so well for the incumbent. And in legislative races in Texas, 88% of the time that the incumbent is forced into a runoff end up losing um, if there's a sitting incumbent. So all to say that we're the building blocks together. we got a lot of work ahead of us. But you're right. It's going to be on our campaign to get those folks back out. I remember that when you were on with us before, you talked in detail about the importance of of doing some of the things that Ken Paxton has done in terms of lawsuits and standing up to the federal government's overreach, but you believe you'd be more effective uh, than him in doing it, and you're also concerned that he's compromised in his ability to do it by what's hanging over him. On the other hand, I, 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 I'm, I'm interested in why you are so focused on getting the Trump endorsement, even to the point of, of wanting him to unendorse Ken Paxton. What, what does that mean for you? What does that do for you? Well, in order to win a runoff, I'm going to have to reach out to everybody. And so, you know, on election night, we didn't really have time to celebrate. I reached out to everybody um, formerly on a ballot or currently on a ballot uh, at all levels of state government and including national government. So that started with the leader of our party. Um, I don't expect a change there, but um, we continue to reach out to a lot of grassroots leaders in Texas. And I feel very confident about some of the announcements we'll be making in the next few weeks with uh, their announcements of support. But, you know, again, this is going to be about beating the Democrats. This is why I'm in the race. I'm not here to trash fellow Republicans. I'm just alarmed as a parent of two in the direction of our country where Joe Biden has taken it. And what it means for Texas. Um, and when you look at liberal progressive leadership in, say, my hometown of, of Austin, with defund the police and a DA that has decided to politicize his office, we need an aggressive attorney general that's working with the legislature to change the rules of the game to make it more fair for victims in Texas. We've gotten way too soft on crime. And so we'll continue that message uh, with grassroots. And I think we're going to continue to garner even more support. So if your outreach is to Democrats and independents, let's talk about Bear County. It's a purple, if not blue, uh, county. Um, there's a lot of hesitancy about you, as you know, because of the Alamo and the plans for it and the way you went about it, the hiring of an outside design firm. Um, what do you want to say to Bear County voters who might like the stuff you're saying about other AG issues, but don't trust you based on the Alamo, uh, the reimagining of the Alamo? 
Well, I couldn't be more proud of the work of the last seven years. And to be honest with you, Jack, the place has fallen apart when I showed up. Uh, Texas A&M wrapped up a study that showed that the legislature did not intervene, that the church in the Long Barracks would not be around for our children and our grandchildren. And so uh, I, I took that to heart, went to the legislature. We got a historic appropriation that uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick helped us secure. Uh, $30 million in my first session and $100 million in the second session. And we're, we're hard at work. Uh, we've closed down Alamo Street. We've gotten rid of the Ripley's, believe it or not, Wax Museum. We announced that about three weeks ago. The Cenotaph ain't moving. The Palisades have been rebuilt, and the 18-pound cannon um, has now been installed on the southwest side of the compound. So all to say that we're really excited about the future of the Alamo, the most visited site in the state of Texas. My staff deserves all the credit for getting us to where we are. And this summer we'll be announcing the Phil Collins Visitor Center where we will showcase the largest, what is to believe the largest private collection of Alamo related artifacts. And so we encourage San Antonians, folks in Bear County to come out and learn more about the 1836 plan. It's a great plan. It's the most important conservation project and um, and what it, for what it's worth legally, uh, it was my office that protected the iconic brands and secured the intellectual property rights. Jack, if you could believe it, none of my predecessors secured the trademark or the uh, intellectual property rights of the church, the iconic facade. And so that's why you have Alamo Rental Car and other businesses that have taken the brand before my watch um, at the helm as land commissioner to make sure that it's legally protected for uh, future generations. So you're saying basically people don't know all the great things you did. They have this this flawed understanding of what was going on there. Is that was that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah. There was a, there was a lot of misinformation about uh, about the plan. Um, and look, uh, as the advocate for the plan, my goal was to make sure that the entire public, not only San Antonio, Bear County, but the people of Texas, had a chance to weigh in. And look, democracy is not pretty. Uh, especially when you're bringing in public input from around the state. But this is the Alamo. This is the shrine of Texas liberty. And, um, you know, we deserve to be passionate about it, and all of us have our voice in it, and uh, including members of the legislature. So, yes, it, it's taken a while to prosecute, but this is the most important conservation project. And as a military veteran myself who served at Lackland Air Force Base for many years, I went to many commissioning ceremonies on the ground at the Alamo. I bring my boys on Veterans Day to, to visit who are now eight and six years old, so that they understand the true sacrifice, uh, what's necessary to keep a country or a republic free. And so um, I'll continue making that case to the public in terms of what we're trying to accomplish uh, as part of the 1836 plan, but it's to create deference and, and, a, and a solemn site of ritual for, for honoring those that gave the last ultimate measure for the idea of freedom and freedom from tyranny in the form of the Mexican mm -hmm. government. Um, thank you for your service, by the way, since you mentioned it. Um, one of the things that the land commissioner's office does is, is administer the veterans' homes. You took a lot of heat during the primary from at least one of your opponents for the COVID fatality rate at those facilities. It was much higher, I think, twice the rate of other nursing homes in the state. What is your response to that? Well, I dispute that figure, and, and I dispute it all along, whether it's in my communications with the legislature or with um, the people of Texas. Unlike Governor Cuomo, I was very transparent from day one, and it's no secret that elderly care facilities were the epicenter of uh, this crisis. 
but I was successful in getting the first COVID administration, uh, COVID vaccines administered to military veterans in our homes. And since that time, hospitalizations have absolutely plummeted off, off the cliff. And so um, we've changed the process by which we house our veterans. We've created a lot more social distancing. Um, and so I'm really proud of the staff and how we responded to it. But, you know, when we didn't have vaccines or therapies to speak of for the first few months, it was challenging. Um, but, you know, I'll say this, that, you know, Ken Paxton has a completely different viewpoint on COVID policy. He's actually fought against state agencies having to disclose their, whether it's veteran homes or elderly care facilities from disclosing if they're funded by taxpayer money, any documents, emails, or phone calls. I went above and beyond the requirements of the law to disclose everything that was happening in veterans' homes. And look, my goal as a vet myself was to always create an atmosphere in working with the legislature that any of us would house our parents and our grandparents and be proud of it. All right, Republican Attorney General candidate George P. Bush. Hope you'll come back again. I appreciate the time with us today. Thank you. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. I, I will tell you that a lot of people in politics, I, I, in fact, most people in politics are in politics because they want to be in politics. Everyone at election time makes you think or wants you to think that they're on a crusade, they'd rather be doing something else, but this is so important. But the truth is that this is just like any other career choice. You're probably in the field you're in because you like it or you want to do that or it's lucrative. And, and people in politics are people that want to be in politics. They want to be in government. They, they see themselves as cut out for that. It's why I've also told you that a lot of them pretty much office shop and even party shop, meaning they're running as a Republican or they're running as a Democrat because that's what makes the most logical sense for them given the opportunities or the, you know, the demographics. So you would like to think all the Democrats really believe in D stuff and all the Republicans really believe in R stuff, but a lot of them are just in one party or the other because they had to choose one. When I listen to George P. Bush, and I can't say I know this, I can't prove this to you, he just seems like a guy that is in, you know, kind of opportunistic. Like everything he's doing. I don't know that I ever believed he even wanted to be land commissioner. That always felt like a rung on the ladder to me. Didn't that seem that way to you? And when I look at the ads with the ATV and the wraparound sunglasses and every other word is Donald Trump, I just, I'm having a hard time believing that that's where he's at. He seems like a guy, if you were, if you were designing a candidate or a candidacy on a clean sheet of paper, these are all the, the things you would put in to appeal to Texas voters. But I don't, they don't ring true. They don't seem authentic. And I'm not saying that other politicians are super authentic, because I know they all have kind of a veneer of shadiness to them. But you know what I'm saying? He's just, I, I don't know if I buy any of it. You know? And um, it, it's, it's, it, it's probably not fair for me to say this, because, again, I can't prove it, but I'm being honest in saying this is just a hunch I have. I'm not telling you you should believe this. My hunch when I listen to him, when I watch him on other interviews, is that he's smart about what people want to hear. He's also picked a guy. I mean, if you were going to run against anybody, 
right? If you were going to tilt against any of the windmills of the Republican incumbents, Ken Paxton would be the guy. And it may well be that people are ready to move on from Ken Paxton. I'm not endorsing anybody. I'm not telling you how to vote. Um, but there's, I can't, sh- I, I'm, I'm looking for it and I can't shake the feeling that this whole thing is just very opportunistic. And people have, people always have hope that the next guy will be better. You know, they're learning in New York City. They elected a new mayor. They had high hopes for him. He was very different. Said a lot of very different things on the campaign trail. They liked what they heard. New guy. He's turning out to be very much like the guy before him. People are very, very disappointed. But it happens. It happens a lot. Jana is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Hi, Jana. Hi. That interview was very interesting how he kind of didn't answer your questions. And the Alamo plan was ridiculous. The only reason it didn't get, because there was so much public outcry, what they were going to do. And for mm-hmm. him to sort of turn it around and say, oh, I did this, I did this. It wound know. up the way he always you know. wanted it to. Yeah, yeah, I know. That was ridiculous. So I'm not voting for him. I don't trust him. Uh, yeah, that's all I had to say. <laughs> yeah, no, Jana, thanks. I appreciate the call. Yeah, I don't know. Again, I, I, we're going to present all these people. We're going to put them on the air. You're going to get to hear them. Uh, we give them more time than most shows do. We try to let them breathe a little. Um, I don't do ambush interviews, but it, it, it's not, I don't know, there's something about it. I'm not saying he's a bad guy. I just think he wants that office and whatever comes after it. That's about all I can be sure of with him right now. So Dennis, everything I'm hearing makes it sound like we're, we're not really in freeze territory, right? We're just, just north of freeze territory. Yeah. I mean, the only people that might see a freeze would be in the hill country. That'd probably right. be tomorrow night, not tonight. Yeah. So we're, I think, I think. We've made it through winter. I I, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I saw a lot of people buying plants yesterday and planting the digging holes and planting. And you want to hope that they didn't jump the. I, I took the. Uh, I kind of dewinterized my hose bibs. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, was... last week was a great weekend to you know <laughs> do all that stuff, and then right. last night the wind came through. I'm like, oh no, not again. What is this? All right, sir. Thank you. Um, we learned this afternoon that the national average. Price per gallon is now at an all-time high, uh, eclipsing a high briefly set in the summer of 2008. And this time, the experts uh, at GasBuddy.com say not only is it higher, but it will probably stay higher and maybe go higher longer. So is the higher gas price anybody's fault? Is it is it Joe Biden's fault? Is it Donald Trump's fault? Because everything theoretically can be Donald Trump's fault. I guess it could be racism's fault, too. You know, Just throwing all these possibilities out there, giving you multiple choice. Is it Biden? Is it Trump? Is it Putin? You're going to hear a lot about Putin now. These are Putin gas prices. This is Putin inflation. You probably didn't vote for him, but you're, you're getting it anyway. And at the same time, we're hearing the the gas price story, and you know it. I mean, you don't need me to tell you. We're hearing today that the U.S. might turn back to Venezuela and try to do business with and reestablish diplomatic relations with 
the Maduro regime. We dissolved diplomatic relations with them in 2019. It is and has continued to be the policy of the United States. We don't actually recognize him as the legit president of Venezuela. But they have a lot of oil. And they're in our hemisphere. And um, any port in a storm. Kind of ironic that the Biden people are trying to make their stand against Putin a morality stand, even talking about war crimes, but to get oil to defray the high pump price, which is politically killing them, they might have to go to Venezuela, and they might also have to go to Saudi Arabia. Now, about Saudi Arabia, candidate Joe Biden said in 2019 that they have no socially redeeming value, meaning the regime. All right? Saudi Arabian regime has no socially redeeming value. And we would make them international pariahs. He didn't do it once he became president. He didn't, he didn't do the tough things with Saudi Arabia that he said he would do. I don't know if you and I are ever going to live to see an American president that actually is tough with Saudi Arabia. I, I doubt that's ever going to happen. But in any event, he didn't. And, um, now they're also saying, uh, they might ask or beg the Saudis for more oil, and, and President Biden himself might even make a state visit to get the leader of Saudi Arabia uh, to come across. Here's, here's the point. The positions that we took on so many of these countries were positions that were crafted by and urged by the people that presidents listen to. And, you know, we tend to think of presidencies as one guy, but presidencies are made up of that one guy and all the people that are his gurus or kitchen cabinet or the people he listens to. You know, every president has them and has had them and will have them. And um, so a presidency is is the net result of all that advice and all that, you know, best thinking, best people, the big experts, right? So the problem we have in this country is that we keep changing presidents every four or eight years, but the people that make our foreign policy are pretty much the same people. You know, you can switch parties, but a lot of the same people are the, you know, elder statesmen. They're writing in the the right journals, they're teaching at the right schools, they're uh, lecturing at the National War College, they're giving the symposia, they're at Davos, they're, they're here, they're there. So you and I think we're, we're, we're changing out presidents, but we're really keeping the same underwear on under the, uh, under the new suit. And then Trump was the one president, say what you will about him, that rejected most of those elites. So, and he didn't, he didn't completely, but he mostly rejected the conventional thinkers of his own party, as well as of the Democrats. And he called them out. He called them out on NATO and he called them out on the UN. And he, he said, you know, he called them out on the Iran, on the uh, Iraq war and Afghanistan war. And they didn't like it. That was their issue with the Ukraine phone call about which they tried to impeach him. Well, the first impeachment. You know, he wasn't obeying and, and, and showing reverence 
to these gurus. But once he was gone, Biden brought them all back. He bragged about it. The adults are in charge again. That's what that meant. And so now their theoreticals are colliding with reality. And their theoreticals about oil and their theoreticals about green energy and their theoreticals about Putin and their theoreticals about engagement and their theoreticals about international norms. No country would ever do this or that because then they'd be a pariah among nations or they would be uh, in violation of international law. Turns out there's, there's regimes that don't care. Just like you probably know people who don't care what anyone thinks of them and maybe you're that kind of person. There are regimes that do not care if they get invited to the right parties. Putin is now in that situation. And they don't know what to do. They thought they could just scold him. And it didn't work. This thing with the oil is interesting. Every time, in my lifetime, every time oil prices or gas prices have gone up, It's been politically dangerous for whoever was president. And no matter which party it was, they would always frantically try to lower those prices. Oh, we're going to release uh, the petroleum reserves, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, because because it it, it kills you at 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 the ballot box. If people are paying a lot for gas, it kills you at the ballot box. This may be the first administration where I think they actually want the pain. Yeah, they'd like a little temporary reprieve to get through the midterms. But I don't know about you. We were talking last hour about do you believe George P. Bush. Do you believe that Joe Biden, when he says, I take gas prices personally and I want to lower the price, I want to make it affordable, do you believe him? Because I don't know why you would if you're talking about the same Joe Biden that full-throatedly endorsed the Green New Deal. And he did that at a time when he was very desperate and afraid he was not going to get the nomination. I told you at the time, I'm not sure he even believes it, but he's saying it. He's, 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 he needs those, those um, young squad Democrats. He can't afford to have them work against him. And so he went in with the Green New Deal. And so higher gas prices for this administration, with the people running our energy policy, like Jennifer Granholm and Pete Buttigieg, and when you have people like Susan Rice and Valerie Jarrett running the domestic policy arm of the, of the White House, it's Obama's third term, higher gas prices are a feature, not a bug. When you're preaching electric cars, when you're preaching mass transit, when you're saying that personal use autos are selfish and killing the planet, why would you work very hard to get gas prices down? In fact, why wouldn't you work to get them up? And right now, you kind of get a twofer. The gas prices go up, and you get to shift the blame to this crazy Russian. So it kind of comes back to that question we were talking about last hour. You hear what people are saying, but do you believe it? Do you believe that President Joe Biden, whether you voted for him or not, really will pull out all the stops? when it comes to the price at the pump? Or do you believe that he's being told that high price just gets us to the Green New Deal sooner? That gets Jack into an electric car sooner? Or that gets Mary into the 
you know, taking the bus to work sooner. We've basically said we're not getting into Ukraine because it's not NATO. That isn't the real reason we're not in Ukraine. We're not in Ukraine because we don't want to be in a land war with Russia and because we're afraid that they would escalate with nuclear uh, battlefield nuclear weapons or maybe even more than that. So we've, we've given a sort of false answer. We've said, sorry, Ukraine, there's a technicality, you're not NATO. That would mean that if a NATO country was attacked, invaded, menaced, we would fight. Do you believe that? Does it, does that seem, does it seem like this administration would, would come to the robust, full military, all hands on deck defense of Lithuania? I'm asking, what do you, what do you think? 210, 599. 5555. Brian is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Brian, good evening. Hi, good evening, Jack. Thanks for taking my call. Um, Sure. You know, I kind of jumped in late there on the discussion about the Biden response to the high gas prices. Yeah. Uh, One thing I, I, I really don't understand is that if, you know, if the goal is to reduce carbon dioxide in the environment, I, I don't know why people aren't pushing for nuclear energy again. And it makes me think there's a real lack of sincerity in terms of wanting to save the planet. Uh, And it seems like, you know, their ambitions lie elsewhere. Haven't we scared the hell out of people with nuclear energy? I mean, in this country, we had Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, we had uh, the, the, I forget the name of the Japanese uh, uh, plant where the tsunami wave hit it. But, it, it, you know, as you probably know, Brian, 75% of the electricity in France is generated by nuclear, you know, uh, power plants. And the French don't seem like, you know, whack jobs. Uh, so yeah, I'm with you. I don't know why we can't have a logical, rational discussion about it, but I'm guessing it's because we've just scared people. Yeah. But I, and then I wonder if our scaring people had, you know, if there was something behind that too, you yeah. know. I, well, probably. I mean, it, it, wouldn't you, if you were a competitor to nuclear power, wouldn't you want to scare people about it? Yeah. Yeah, you would. Good point. Now, I mean, it's not perfect. I mean, it has its own share of pros and cons. There is a there is a carbon footprint to a nuclear power plant. There's also uh, the issue of waste and, and security. But I, I think if we were honest, I think what you're getting at is if we were honest about wanting to move into the future, we would be putting all those options forward, but we're only talking about wind and solar, like we can live our whole future on that, and, and I just don't see it. No, and yeah, exactly, it doesn't seem practical. So that yeah. that's what makes me wonder. I guess that's the, that's the idea. I, I, I don't think most people, when they have this debate, are probably holding back some cards or hiding a card up their sleeve, and, and I think you're right to suspect that the things they favor and disfavor are not done sincerely. Yeah. Uh, there's a great book. I just I just finished a book called Unsettled. Um, I don't know if you've heard about this or not. It came out last year. There's a book called Unsettled by Dr. Stephen Coonan. If you can get this book, you should read it, and we'll try to get him on the show at some point. He wrote a, he to give you the background. Um, he he worked in the Obama administration in the Energy Department. He's a Democrat. He says it a number of times in the book. He's a he's a liberal Democrat. He taught at uh, several universities, 
Um, so he's liberal academia. But he wrote this book called Unsettled, and the premise of the book is that the science about the climate is not settled. So he's not saying there's nothing to... He's not, he's not taking an extreme position against or for man-made climate change, but he's saying the science is not settled, and you should be very suspicious of people who say that it is. And, and Brian's call kind of reminds me of that, because I'm always suspicious of people who have this one you know, one word solution to energy. We gotta go nuclear. We gotta go solar. We gotta do, drill, baby, drill. The, the, the truth is we should want all those things to compete. We should want all those things to, to, you know, muscle their way up to the bar and see what prevails. That's what we should also be doing with cars. We shouldn't be mandating electric cars. We should let the marketplace drive what people are willing to pay for and buy. And so Stephen Coonan in this book lays out, it's it's very dense reading. It's a short book, but it takes you a while to get through. A lot of charts. He, he basically lays out the fact that about 1% of the changes in our climate, and our climate is, has always been changing, it always will change. You can go back, you know, 100,000 years and you can find evidence that Global uh, temperatures were rising and falling. Ocean levels were rising and falling. Glaciers were melting and freezing. But he says only about 1% of, of what affects all of that fluctuation is human behaviors. Everything else is the planet doing its thing. And um, so he's, he's trying to find the reasonable middle and he makes the point, he says, you know, if we're going to do things, if we're going to enact policies, taxes, if we're going to put uh, burdens on people's lives, and by the way, we are, because these green energy activists uh, have no problem uh, putting people out of their homes, out of their jobs, crippling economies, and it's the hardest on poor countries and third world countries, they will be devastated by these policies. But if we're going to do big, dramatic things that that affect people's lives, we have to know why we're doing them. And we have to be honest as to whether the things we're saying we must do, we've got to do this. We've got to be honest with people. And he says we haven't been. The, the, The planet is not broken. The environment is not wrecked. The fluctuations, you know, these days a lot of people who should be reporting the weather fancy themselves climate reporters instead. And they will stand in front of a, you know, raging surf at a hurricane or stand in floodwaters and try to tell you that what you're seeing isn't weather, it's the destruction of the climate by mankind. But that's not true. That That is not the case. And because they and and many in the scientific community have been so dishonest about this, now any attempt to honestly get your attention about something like nuclear or the things that we really do need to be careful about, the things that we all would like to conserve and preserve about nature, now they've lost credibility. It kind of reminds me of the COVID thing. The COVID thing was like the climate debate only all sped up. The scientists started out, everybody was hanging on their every word. 
What do I need to do? Do I need a mask? Do I need to wipe down my groceries? And then in very short order, because they went from being scientists to being activists, they lost most, if not all, of their credibility. When's the last time you saw Tony Fauci? Where, where'd he go? You couldn't get rid of the guy for two years. Now he's like on the milk carton. But that was the decision to become activists rather than scientists. And he implores, as a scientist writing this book, Steve Coonan implores his colleagues, please be scientists. Break it down for people. Give them the data so that the, the policymakers have better information and the public has better information in terms of voting for or against them. Unsettled is the book. Steve Coonan is the author. K-O-O-N-I-N, I believe is the spelling. We'll, we'll have him on. It's National Cereal Day. It's not too late. You can have cereal for dinner. You can have cereal at night. I love cereal at night. I love it better at night than in the morning, to tell you the truth. Um, National Cereal Day. What's the best cereal? What would you say is the best cereal? What is your go-to? What's your favorite cereal? 210-599-5555. I looked it up today to see what the most popular cereals were. I was a little disappointed that my favorite is not even... It's nowhere in the rankings. That figures. That's that's about on a par for the course with me on most things. Um, my favorite cereal, and I mean, it's not even close, Grape Nut Flakes. Not Grape Nuts, Grape Nut Flakes. Not sure what the relationship is other than the name. Like Grape Nuts are okay, but Grape Nut Flakes, oh, man. That's almost dessert-like to me. And it's not really a, a real sweet cereal. I just like the flavor. Anybody else like Grape Nut Flakes? It's an old man cereal. I was told that years ago. Now I am an old man, so I feel okay with it. I tend to like the old man cereals. Um, for me, it's, you know, Grape Nut Flakes, Corn Flakes, nothing, <laughs> nothing more dull. Nothing says dull guy, dull old man than Corn Flakes. But I love Corn Flakes. I love Special K. Um, when I was a kid, like all kids, I wanted the sugary sweet cereals. My mom would not buy us Lucky Charms. But uh, but I think one time we got them as a treat. There were kids that were getting Lucky Charms every day. You could have told me, that, you know, you, you can live in a, in, a, in a gold-plated palace. And I would have said, yeah, but will there be Lucky Charms? You know? They had like a mystique when we were kids. Probably because my mom wouldn't buy them. They're actually not that great, right, when you have them. They're not really that... They're I don't know. Are they? I don't think they are. All right. What's your favorite cereal? 210-599-5555. What's the best cereal in honor of National Cereal Day? The number one best-selling cereal in America, you probably will not be surprised to hear this, is Cheerios by a lot. Cheerios is the big winner, year in and year out. They've been number one for a long time. Honey Nut Cheerios are number two. So it's like a Cheerios dynasty. And in fact, the... Uh, in the top five, it's Cheerios, Honey Nut Cheerios, Frosted Flakes. You figure that, right? Honey Bunches of O's, which is also kind of in the Cheerio realm, right? And then um, 
Uh, cinnamon Toast Crunch is the fifth most popular cereal. I like that, but boy, that's, that is really sweet. Cinnamon Toast Crunch, I mean, whoa. Gives you that, you get that super sweet cinnamon milk when it sits in the milk, right? Changes the milk. 210-599-5555. Ralph's on the radio. Hi, Ralph. Hey, how are you doing this evening? Good, sir. What's the best cereal? Well, my favorite as a kid, I think, was Captain Crunch. Mm. Now, I think I'd have to say it's Cocoa Krispies. Cocoa Krispies are good. I, You know, I don't like Cocoa Puffs, but I do like Cocoa Krispies. I, I never liked Cocoa Puffs. Yeah. Cocoa Pebbles are okay. Yeah. And the other the other off-brands of Cocoa Krispies, but I think Cocoa Krispies is now my current favorite. But yeah. Captain Crunch is right there with it. So when you're feeling like a kid again, you go back to the Captain Crunch. Sure. I got a box there. in the house now. There you go. There you go. See, and he never got promoted. He got stuck at captain, right? He never. Yeah. You think? <laughs> you think by now he'd be Admiral Crunch? You know, he just didn't play his cards right. All right, Ralph. Thank you. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. What's the best cereal in honor of National Cereal Day? Grant is on the radio. Hi, Grant. Good evening, Jack. How you doing today, sir? Good, sir. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you. I think the best. Cereal there is is Captain Crunch peanut butter, and then you dump in some Count Chocula, then you got uh, Reese's piece Reese's cups going on. Whoa! You make like a you make like a cereal cocktail. Look at you! Yeah, like a hodgepodge. Yes, sir. I get in there and Frankenstein it. <laughs> I never, I never thought to do that. Is that even allowed? Are you sure not violating a law or something? I never, I never thought you could do that. You, that's like crossing the streams in Ghostbusters. I got one foot inbounds, and, and we're running down the line, Jack. Look at you. Uh-huh. All right. So tell me the combination again. It was Captain Crunch peanut butter Captain and what Crunch else? Peanut butter, then Count Chocula. And then the Count Chocula. <clears throat> it's the old yeah. one with Frankenberry and Count Chocula. All right. So like 50-50, or do you have like a... Pretty much. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Grant's mixing our, our them up. I like that. It's a whole new world for us. We never even thought of that. 210-599-5555. Yeah, top uh, cereal brands in America, Cheerios, Honey Nut Cheerios, Frosted Flakes, Honey Bunches of Oats, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Lucky Charms is at number six, Fruit Loops, never cared for those, Fruit Loops at number seven, eighth most popular Frosted Mini Wheats, I do like those. Those are awesome. Uh, Life is number nine. Raisin Bran is number 10. I, I, even even I'm too young for Raisin Bran. I haven't gotten the, the hang of Raisin Bran yet. That seems like a very grown-up, mature, like you're a very serious person. If you eat Raisin Bran, you know, you're there's no nonsense about you, no frivolity. You don't, you don't have any nonsense in your life. You're very straightforward. Raisin Bran's like, just get down to business, you know. I just want to have a bowel movement. <laughs> right? I mean, basically, with Raisin Bran, you're just trying to, you're you're not you're not pretending. You're not you're not like Grant with his cereal cocktail. You're like this is about keeping, you know, the traffic moving through the Suez Canal, right? Okay, I get it. Uh, life cereal is good. I I don't think I've had life cereal in many many years. That was that was a new thing when I was a kid. Remember Mikey, the kid Mikey in the life cereal commercials? Yeah. Two ten five nine nine. 5555. Let's see. Brady is on KTSA. Hi, Brady. Hi, sir. What's Blusters. your what's your favorite cereal? Flusters. 
Clusters. Oh. You remember old Clusters way back in the day? I don't know if I know that, that one. Yes, sir. That and uh, Mini Wheats. Yeah, I do like the Mini Wheats. Which Mini Wheats do you like best? They have the vanilla, uh, they got the cinnamon, they got the strawberry. No, just plain old, plain Jane old Mini Wheats. Yeah. Oh, oh. so you don't want the Mini Wheats with frosting. You want the, the unsweetened Mini Wheats. Yeah, you know, once you get over yeah. 50, you need all that fiber. I, I understand. Yeah. How do you feel about Raisin Bran? I love Raisin Bran. See, you're a you're a serious guy. You're no fooling around with Brady. He's like, I just I know what I'm here for. All right, thank you, Brady. Uh two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five Jack on KTSA. Now we when I was a kid, we would not have a lot of different kinds of cereal. You know, I mean you would want a lot of different brands. You'd want every brand that was advertised on TV. But we grew up, right, when we were kids, we didn't get everything we asked for. We didn't get most of what we asked for. And so my mom would have one or two or three, maybe, brands of cereal, one of which would always be some brand that you as a kid wouldn't go near with a, you know, 10-foot pole. I mean, some of those some of those grown-up cereals, you might as well eat sawdust, right? And um, And now there's so many brands. And I guess if you wanted to, you could have, like, how many different kinds do you have on hand at one time? You could probably have a dozen of them, I guess, right? Um, I don't, I don't eat nearly as much cereal as I used to, but to me, it's still kind of a treat. I kind of like it, you know, and I, and I like it at night more than I do in the morning. What about you? What's your favorite uh, cereal? 210-599-5555. Vicki is on the radio. Hi, Vicki. Hi, how are you Good. I'm a Frosted Flakes person. Yes. Although I like the Honey Nut Cheerios. Yeah. I like the Cheerios, but I got to add the sugar. So, yeah. but I have a story about. I have a my son married someone that she's very. She loves everything organic. She wants to raise her children organic and all that. So there's no real sugar in her house. You know, I, I most one of my suitcases when I travel to Missouri is. <laughs> All that kind of stuff, you know. And my son says, "Okay, you got to bring in the contraband, right?" That's right, I do. I do. You're like a pusher. I am. I am. You're like a drug dealer. My son says he's got. We've got a family thing planned in April. He says, "Okay, mom, so we're going to make cinnamon rolls and bring the double stuffed Oreos, and we'll make peanut butter." Oh man, I'm inviting you, Vicky. I want you to come to my family gatherings too. That's hilarious. I went to Walmart and I bought sugar frosted flakes and cheese box. There you go. And I bring it home and I tell my little two and a half year old, sweet, sweetest little girl, and I said, you know what this tiger on the front, this is Tony the Tiger. So I had to look right. up on YouTube and find an older video right. of what he used to say, they're great. Right. She got the bit, most fun. She'd sit down, she walked around with a little bowl. Only a little bowl, mind you, yeah. of Frosted Flakes. And she walked around, and she says, they're great. Oh, look <laughs> so, at you. I, it, was, it was so cute. But anyway, so we make all the bad stuff, and then when I'm gone, they get back on their That's right. Organic, that's right. That's fair thing. enough. I'm, I'm yeah. a grandma, see? That's what it, that's your, you are doing your job as a grandma. I'd expect nothing that's less. Right. That's good you, good right. for you, Vicky. Thank you. Uh, Tony is on KTSA. Hi, Tony. Hey, Jack. Um, I could tell you one of my uh, favorite kid cereals is, is uh, Count Chocula. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the kid's favorite. Uh, for right now, um, 
I'm all grown up, about 20 years, almost in my, over my 40s. So uh, my, fav- my other favorite cereal right now is uh, Cracklin' No Brand. Whoa. That's another very serious, uh, like, no-nonsense kind of cereal, right? Yeah, it's um, it's got like the granola bars. It's kind of like a kind of like yeah. a Cheerio shape, but it's like a right. It's like granola bar, but it's got a little bit of sugar in it, so it doesn't have that much sugar at all. Yeah. Okay. So, it's, so you're it's you're you're good. trying to do the you're trying to you're trying to pull away from the childhood cereal and and have a grown up cereal. Um, every once in a while, I'll go back to it. <laughs> sure, you got to do that. Absolutely. And if and yeah. if you run out of any, I guess Vicky would be the one to see. Sounds like she's. She can get you the hookup on all those sugary cereals. On the JR poll, powered by Stevens Roofing, the question was, do you think Putin would attack a NATO country? 84% said yes. 16% no. And a new JR poll tomorrow uh, at 4 or anytime at KTSA.com, powered by Stevens Roofing. Uh, talking about cereal, best cereal, your favorite cereal. Uh, it's National Cereal Day. Interesting thing about cereal when you read the history of it, uh, the first dry cereals were invented for sanatoriums and uh, nursing homes, and um, a lot of it was kind of commercial. It was about a, it was about something that could be easily prepared and served to a lot of people, and would be healthy, and um, that's that's really the origins of uh, things like granola and cornflakes and. Companies like Kellogg's and Post and so forth. In fact, uh, Battle Creek, Michigan is called the cereal capital of the world because both Kellogg's and Post got their start in Battle Creek, Michigan. So 210-599-5555, uh, best cereal, and Juan is on the radio. Hi, Juan. Where's your cutter at? Uh, Julius Carr. Julius what? We lost one, so let's move on to Sam. Hi, Sam. You're on KTSA. Hi, Jack. How are you doing, man? Good, sir. How about your favorite cereal? Okay, you know, uh, uh, when we were kids, we actually had milk delivered to our house. I remember that. And it, it, In glass bottles. It in, it, yeah. At first it was in glass bottles, and then they, they came in like a box with like a, right. a bladder thing in it. Right, yeah. And, uh, but my mom got us... Uh, uh, I know this is really basic, plain stuff, but uh, it was uh, Kellogg's Corn Flakes, very cold milk, and they, they, it was this stuff that came in a, a jar. I think it was called Bran. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've seen it in the store, but I've never, you know, and you, so you put the cereal in the bowl, and then you put the Bran on top of that. Yeah, you know, like corn yeah. Flakes. And then pour the milk. I mean, it was delicious. I mean, I know what you're. T- yeah, I know what you're talking about. It made it kind of cr- extra crunchy. Yeah, and and, uh, uh, and it was good for you. Yeah, we used yeah, to put wheat and, uh, germ. We used to put wheat germ wheat on cereal germ. too. That's, yeah. But was that it? Was, out, yeah. yeah, but then they came out with. Uh, I know that other caller about you know natural and organic and all. But then yeah. they came out with uh, the post came out with uh, fruity pebbles. Right, I and then you didn't, some, and then you weren't interested in the cornflakes anymore, right? <laughs> fruity pebbles are like kind of like flavored Rice Krispies. 
Right, right. Yeah, when Fruity Pebbles come along, they're like the new girl, and suddenly nobody's paying attention to the cornflakes anymore. But, Sam, that's a great memory, and I'm glad you mentioned cornflakes, cold milk, and you can add so many things to cornflakes. They're not boring. You can slice banana. You can put berries. You can do all. You can put wheat germ, honey, uh, good old cornflakes. And, you know, somebody mentioned, um, I was looking at the email. We got a ton of emails. Somebody mentioned checks. And I do like rice checks too. Those are those are awesome. So uh, I'm still going to stick with grape nut flakes, though, as my my all time favorite. Um, I actually just checked during the commercial. I don't have any cereal right now, but if I was going to buy a box, the next box would probably be uh, grape nut flakes. I would I would guess. I think that's where I would go. Um, thanks to everybody that called in on that, and thanks to everybody that voted in the JR poll. And um, needless to say. Um, Tomorrow we'll be all over the breaking news, all over whatever is breaking in the news, happening in the news. We'll have a new JR poll. Uh, we'll have lots to talk about. And if you have trouble hearing our show during the time that it's on live from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday through Friday, quick reminder that every episode of our show gets turned into an on-demand podcast, and it usually posts a couple of hours after the end of the show. So this one will be up tonight probably around nine o'clock or so but you can find entire episodes of this show going way back on demand jack ricardi page at ktsa.com see you back here tomorrow at four